Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. It's been two years since we first graced the waves and caught um, wave files across the um, internet into your ears, and we're extremely grateful that you're listening to us now. No matter if you've been with us since the days of Mustang, Money Monster, and Magnificent Seven, or if you just started tuning in after my can episode last week. Sorry, fortnight. No, month. Um, <laughs> to celebrate, sorry. To celebrate, we're going to do what we do best, which is talk films. Anders and Andy will take a walk through Jurassic World's Fallen Kingdom in our Blockbuster Filibuster segment, and we'll open the Cultural Capital Film Diary and count down our top three films about faith. But first, the film that's inspiring that list, Sebastian Lilio's Disobedience. It's insane that you're here. This is my house we're talking about. I keep it in order. Why did you get married? I think he felt that marriage would cure me. <laughs> Esty, what's happened? Tell me the truth. Sebastian Lelio's latest film, Disobedience, is a story set in a rigid Orthodox Jewish community in London. Opening in a highly energetic photography studio in New York City, the film introduces us to Ronnie, played by Rachel Weiss, who receives a mysteriously serious telephone call before travelling to London, where it is revealed her real name is Ronit Kushka, and her semi-estranged father, the local Rav, has just passed away. This homecoming film, filled with the discomfort of a woman returning to a community she once deserted, is intensified by the revelation that Ronit and her old childhood friend, Esty Kopperman, played by Rachel McAdams, were young lovers and both are still drawn to each other. It sounds quite melodramatic, but the film avoids this intensity and instead places its energies in things that go unsaid and things that cannot be felt. Anders, what do you think about this film? Um, I don't think I could feel those energies. Um, I've got to say, I found it mostly quite stifling um, and almost turgid in a way. And, I, you know, maybe that's the point, the stifling... Um, texture to the film. I also found it uh, quite awkward or full of awkwardness, which was a very interesting sensation to to see on screen. Um, I thought both lead, or all three lead performances were wonderful, particularly um, Rachel Weisz, who I thought I thought she was actually quite outstanding in this kind, this quite interesting um, character. But I found the the central. Um, Binary, I guess, between a progressive, um, liberal, cosmopolitan uh, uh, woman on the one hand, and a you know ostensibly oppressed, um, yet also part of potentially a stronger community woman on the other hand. These they were very sort of broadly drawn opposites, um, and. I just found it a bit too simplistic, that portrait for me. What did you think, Andy? I loved it. I um, did not find it, the awkwardness. I thought it was extremely natural. I did find the premise that they would be as in love with each other as fairly ungrounded in a way. I feel like there was a lot of stuff that we were meant to just kind of take for granted that was because mm. it was so much unspoken, like like Ello said in the introduction, yeah. that, that really worked for and against it in some parts as well. 
Yeah, I agree. I I felt like the chemistry between Rachel Rice and Rachel McAdams was very strong, was excellent, and I could see the connection between the two of them. But I think in attempting to withdraw the traditional elements that might make this a melodrama and actually play up the repression in the, in the community, that in fact that chemistry between them was was really, really weakened and that we didn't see enough of it together. And maybe that's where, you know, you felt like there was something missing between, you know, that we didn't get from their childhood or, or their connection because it was really... It, I mean, it was intentionally avoided in the film, I think, because it was trying to be a portrait of something else. Mm. Um, but I think that that was really missing. For me, that, that was a weakness, Andy, but mm. not you. No, no. I mean... It's a very different film to A Fantastic Woman, which we, which is pretty impressive yeah. that Lilo's done to these two films that have come out in Australia in 2018, and they're both, I think, quite strong. And I love the... Actually, I think what almost overpowering McAdams and um, Weiss's performances was Alessandro Nivola's David Cooperman, who I thought had these Job-like tests of faith and character, and almost, even though the film is kind of sold as a sort of queer love story within a repressive, like, religious environment... What he had to deal with, and the tests of faith he had, and the way that he was his journey was, was to try and replace the Rav as this spiritual leader in this community, and the, ultimately the way that he reacted, I thought, was kind of. I, I was just so, I was really moved, quite moved by his, mm. his journey. His arc was very interesting. Yeah, it was un- unexpected, really. Yeah, refreshingly unexpected. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That yeah, his arc was interesting. You're right. I think by the time it got to the end of the film, um, and I think. It is quite obvious what happens, but we will try not to spoil it or speak too obviously (laughs) about it. But the the second to last scene, I found quite poorly done. So basically you have these three childhood friends that have overcome a number of obstacles and they're reunited at this moment of tragedy. And they're working through their differences and they're still connected to each other from their childhoods, but they are no longer... Um, friends, you know, in the same way. And I feel like with the second to last scene, the the kind of conclusion that the three of them come to is quite understandable. I can completely understand why this particular moment would occur um, and this particular, like, dramatic apex would be reached. But in terms of its execution, I just found it extremely unconvincing. Right. Okay. Very, very, not quite clumsy, but just... Just a little bit unconvincing, and yeah, um, I couldn't of... quite get into it. And I was just like, you know, can you cut away from this already? You mm. know, we get the mm. point. Mm. See, I love that scene; it really worked for me. <laughs> but I had exactly the same reaction to the first kiss scene, which mm-hmm. was meant to be breathtakingly unexpected or something. I think, and I was like, mm, it doesn't work. But then there was a scene straight after that, which is the only glimpse of comedy we really have. Well, not comedy; that's that's not right. Humor we have in the whole thing, which is just beautifully done, and it's some lovely little repartee about them walking and carrying a bag on wheels and that stuff. And that was like, that's... I I can really see how a friendship has been long-lasting. Yeah, and you can understand how their their discomfort with each other um, after seeing each other, after how many years, was overcome with that banter. Yeah, so there is some really nice writing, I thought, in this. Um, There was that beautiful moment, and you're right, Anders, I mean, Rachel Weisz is kind of the greatest thing about this film. Her performance is very moving. And the first... And she does it in two two times in the film, but she goes to a cafe or bakery and orders strudel and just sits in the window and eats strudel and a Linza biscuit, I think. Anyway, she just looks so sad mm. eating this strudel. Mm. And it, 
was, is incredibly moving. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. that mm. very simple moment. But something in me says that that doesn't have anything to do with Sebastian Lelio at this point. I just feel like it was so inconsistent that the feeling and the um, kind of emotion in this film was so inconsistently laid out that maybe I'm just reading into their performances rather than in anything particular that he did. I mean, there were a few moments that were quite quite well done. I mean, I feel like the opening was very important. Yeah, yes, um, it was important. Very right. striking yeah. and really, like, it was a really excellent kind of communication of Rachel Weiss's character and yeah. her emotional... And it is of sort of our only glimpse of her in the world or the environment from which she's come. Yes, so it is but we get a very mm-hmm. strong understanding of the kind of person she is yeah. without any revelation of what has occurred or any, like, um, exposition. There's none of that. We just see her behaving. That was really good. But then that kind of is continued throughout the film. And I think we did need a little bit more dialogue or, you know, interestingly, I think Rachel McAdams' accent is not all that good, but she doesn't actually speak all that much. So <laughs> you don't get um, to hear any, you know, f- faulting, faulted um, British accents. Yeah, I really point. forgot how good she is. Because yeah, I forgot that she was in Spotlight. She was wonderful. Mm. But then before that, wasn't she was just in a bunch of, like, not such great films. I remember her from the Brian De Palma film, Passion. Oh, my God, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did like the two of them together, um, but I felt like there were just certain moments that were not portrayed in a way that gave the characters or the actors um, enough kind of space to really show what what they were doing. Esty, do you think I should go back early? No. No. No, I don't think you should leave at all. Is anyone else reminded of Desert Hearts by the sex scene in the daytime in the hotel? Oh, yes. I was. I wasn't, um, but I did like that sex scene very much. I like that sex scene too. So did I. Um, uh, that spit play. It was yeah. very... <laughs> you don't see that in see most mainstream no. films. And it there, was was, cool. there was a woman sitting very close to me who I could tell was palpably uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for the re- in that fil- scene and for the rest of the film. <laughs> I have a feeling that's the only time the term spit play will ever turn up in cultural capital. <laughs> uh, who knows? Well, who knows? It was a highlight. I think it was a highlight of the film for me. Uh, I'm not saying that flippantly. I Yeah, I don't know. I just found it... I, I uh, the portrait was too the I thought the, the central binary opposition was just too simplistic. Yeah, you're right. And it it wasn't as complica- complex as it thought it was, despite these, you know, interesting moments. Maybe there wasn't enough, like, you know, the sex scene was very convincing and very mm. emotional. Um, but, and after that, it kind of just disappeared again. I mean, not entirely. You could still tell that there was a tension between the two characters and that there was a desire that, that they weren't fulfilling in each other. But maybe there just weren't enough, you know, shot reverse shots of them looking at each other. Um, and kind of then looking away. Because mm. that kind of stuff, I mean, is, is very rote in terms of filmmaking, but it can be so powerful in terms mm. of getting to understand how characters are feeling 
maybe there wasn't enough of that or something. I don't know. I just felt like there was there was definitely something lacking there. Because mm. one of the I most agree. interesting things for me was a glimpse inside London's Jewish community. Mm. And I would like to I was wondering if you had any impressions because you saw Manesh mm. last year, which is a film about New York set in New York's Jewish community. Yeah, yeah. I do see some similarities. I mean, you know, you mentioned awkwardness, Anders, and I feel like there's an awkwardness in both of them because in the portrayal of these communities you get a sense that people are always behaving um, to their, you know, within their guidelines and that they're not always comfortable doing so and that they forget. And, you know, we see that that people forget what Mm. to say correctly and how to behave um, in this film, Disobedience. Um, And so you do kind of get that sense and you... Um, I mean, in Menashe or Menashe, whichever it was, I can't, I feel like I got it wrong back then too. Anyway, um, you know, this man feels emotions and the community does not let him either feel or respond to those emotions. And I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a much more complex story. In this film, you see that there is some repression, but it doesn't seem as though it's painted any differently to just your, um, I don't know, stock standard film about a repressed love <laughs> or mm. repressed desires. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I might have missed out on some subtleties. But yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I feel. It's like to be able to get permission to shoot within these buildings and within this community, there must be some sort of concession given that you're not going to be portraying yes. the yeah. religion in a bad light. And so I was thinking that when there was some extremely heightened dramatic roles and Alessandro, oh, sorry, D- D- David's character was under a lot of pressure and was mm. confronted with these things that the Torah is not going to tell you what to do if you know your wife falls in love with another woman or something. You have to keep the house in order and you have these expectations and this yep. is what he says to the other people in the community. But I thought, well, he's not going to like pull out a gun and shoot her or he's not going to like completely lose his head or do anything crazy otherwise. He did seem quite violent at one he, point. There was the te- I got yeah. quite scared. Yeah. yeah, there was the threat, but I was like, well, you know, mm. if he's going to be a good Jewish boy, he's going to be, you know, um, a man and he's going to be represented in this film. It's, there's a good chance it's going to be in a positive light. That's true. Um, I do have to just give a shout out to the um, choice of using the Cure's love song (laughs) in the most um, cliched moment of all fucking time. Like, I loved it. It was great. It was fine. It's it's an amazing song. It plays over the credits as well. Um, But they go into uh, Rachel Weisz's... Um, late father's home and switch on the radio. Yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> and the first lyrics are like home again. <laughs> it's so kind of trite, but I mean, you know, you can't call anything that the cure have ever done trite. <laughs> so it, it, in itself, it's not a bad moment and it didn't make me laugh, but it did make me smile a little bit mm, and just same. be like, how, <laughs> how obvious can you get? <laughs> anyway. I did love Matthew Herbert's score. I thought that was had some really nice, yeah. slightly off kilter, atonal moments. Yes, and it was great for like I th- don't think it went away for about fifty. The first fifteen minutes, there was always something there, mm. and I thought that was very interesting as well because mm. obviously that was a translation of her own kind of suffocating in her position um, and in her emotions. So yeah, and the Jewish men's choirs, I thought beautiful, had some really beautiful color too. Yes, quite a few of the scenes mm. and montages. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a theme that will come back to, I think, in our top threes of the right. religion. Okay. Yes, for sure. But, I mean, I I did um, just have a drink with a friend and kind of was not too hot on this film. But I do think it's really worthwhile seeing. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't 
totally convinced, but I wasn't completely put off. And I think if a film can make you feel somewhere in the middle, then then it's a sign of a good film. Because I wasn't completely carried away, so I know that, you know, I wasn't fangirling over it. So mm. nothing was clouding my judgment, but it definitely made an impression on me. So. Yeah, and it's wonderful to see these actors given some interesting material. I love Rachel Weiss. Yeah. She doesn't get to do enough. No, she was fantastic. Yeah. Really, really good. Yeah. Really strong performance. Yeah, there's not, yeah, there's a certain woundedness in her expression, in a, in a really subtle expressions in the first yeah. part of this film that just made me go, oh, really, yeah, it landed beautifully. And there yeah. was so much repression going with Rachel McAdams that every time she shed that wig and <laughs> actually expressed something. Yeah, well, the wigs, that was an interesting element of yeah, this film. Yeah, it was really quite powerful. Um, particularly when Vice's character, when she uh, buys the wig and, and mm. wears it. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there, there were some not uninteresting moments. <laughs> that, that, that would be my... <laughs> no, I'm with Ella. I'm recommending it. <laughs> yeah, I'm recommending it. But, you know, I would like to discuss it further, I think, and maybe continue to think about where its flaws were because... I think it's an interesting film to study its flaws, whereas some other films I will just not even bother. Mm. Mm. Yeah, true. Um, anyway, go cool. see it. Do. Which brings us to this episode's film diary. The Refugee Week Film Festival features five films. Is it a festival? I don't know. They're calling it a festival, so let's run with that. Each with a Q&A and with a director and cast member. It runs until June 22nd at Cinema Nova. To celebrate its 40th anniversary, that the Astor is screening 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70mm twice daily until June 24th, and on the 25th you get a double bill of A Quiet Place with the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Over at Acme, David Stratton has selected his favourite films by Aki Kurismaki for the Essential Kurismaki season, which runs until July 1st. Andre Tarkovsky's final film, The Sacrifice, is screening until July 14, and the Melbourne International Animation Festival is running until June 23rd. Director Vahid Jalivand follows Wednesday, May 9, which we reviewed on episode 10, with his Venice Film Festival award-winning film, No Date, No Signature, which runs from June 29 until July 12. Still at Acme, Ello, what's happening over at Melbourne Cinematheque? Melbourne Cinematheque is about to begin its season focusing on actor and Japanese actor and director Kinuyo Tanaka, who is a woman who started her career as an actor and worked with some of the you know highest and most accomplished um, male directors in Japan. Uh, and this season includes two films from Yasujiro Ozu and two from Kenji Mizuguchi, um, kind of stalwarts of that era and also includes two films directed by Tanaka herself. Um, So I'm really excited about this season. It's co-presented with the Japan Foundation who are really wonderful and I think we present with them just about every year because they have um, such a great kind of vast collection of film prints, um, so films on 35mm. So really excited Mm. about this one. So rare to see films um, directed by her. I think I haven't seen a single one. Yes, I haven't even heard of her to be honest, apart from as an actress. Okay, yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, she is, you know, she, she has such a broad career um, and she has such a striking face, but seeing what she has done as a director will be a real treat. Cool. Um, so, super excited for that. Right, and sorry, what were those dates again? It starts on the 20th of June and runs for uh, until the 4th of July, so three Wednesdays. Great, thank you. So, uh, what are you dating like an accountant now? Or? Owen. Ventriloquist? Stop it. You love a dummy. This is not why we're here. You can blame me. Try to 
I know why we're here. A rescue op. Save the dinosaurs from an island that's about to explode. What could go wrong? And now to our blockbuster filibuster segment, in which Anders and I will dissect Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So, um, <laughs> so this is the fifth film in the Jurassic franchise, but the mm. second in the Jurassic World reboot, and which is quite a strange reboot, come to think of it, because nobody was really desperate for more Jurassic anything after the third one, as far as I can tell, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. But, yeah, and so... Oh, the well, pre- there's, a, there's a conjuring universe. There's a Sicario universe oh, now, so... <laughs> <That's true. laughs> and I thought a John Wick universe was just was too much. In fact, I still think it is too much. There's no need for it at all. But um, no, so the premise of this film automatically sets up the fact that it's going to be full of action because there is a island that's exploding. It's going to be destroyed by a, a volcano, and it happens to be the island on which uh, the dinosaurs are living. So they have to be freighted off after the government decide that they're not going to have anything to do with it in an early scene. And then we get non-stop breakneck action. <laughs> and as what did you think of this um, of J.A.B. Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? Non-stop breakneck action. I, uh, no, did not rate this at all. Um, And I'm saying this as someone who really highly rates Jurassic World, the last film, which I know a lot of people did not like, but I found it to be fun, enjoyable, and self-aware, but not cloyingly Mm self-aware. This I found less self-aware, less enjoyable, and less fun. So it's, it's a weird film in that it's... Quite, it's structured into sort of two distinct yeah, parts. Yeah, it is. It's so you have the parts. first part that's like back to, what is it, Isla Nubar or whatever, the island yes. where all of the previous films have taken place, probably as the filmmakers have realised that they've probably explored this island one too many times, they blow it up with this volcano, leading to, you know, dinosaurs running in front of explosions and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, on paper sounds ridiculous and fun and wonderful, yes. but I think those those sort of hero shots were really just hero glimpses. Like, you mm. only got these the briefest of glimpses at these... I thought I felt like the film was afraid to revel in those moments enough. Anyway, the first half is on this on the island. The island explodes, um, and then the second half takes place at the mansion property of Lockwood. some guy. Yeah, the Lockwood Estate, where the dinosaurs are being. Well, that's not spoiled. Should we not spoil? No, we should not spoil. But okay, but the dinosaurs and the characters end up at Lockwood Estate yes. <laughs> in a sort of Gremlins-like situation with these animals <laughs> in this huge house. Um, <laughs> yeah, I completely disagree with you. I absolutely love this, and this was head and shoulders above Jurassic World for me. No was, way. So, okay, Where's so, the fun? Well, the fun is the fact that they throw the science, any semblance of science, out the window. Which Jurassic, mm. it, Michael Crichton in the Jurassic World and Jurassic Park, you know, dino DNA aside, has not really had science that parallels with science as we know it in the real world. And so when, you know, you can get Chris Pratt jumping off several hundred metre high cliff into the water with no ill effect, or you get these completely bizarre scenarios in which dinosaurs can smell noxious gas and know that it's about to explode, and all this, it's, just, it's kind of stupid. It's completely nonsense. But there are moments that let, give J.A. Biona a chance to get gothic and get interesting visually and build tension mm. in ways that the other films have had zero interest in, and which almost seems like a mismatch for this particular franchise. Yeah. The, the, the way he's... There is literal shark jumping. I mean, it's just, it's mm. kind of dumb. But if you'd go along with it, and I th- I find it really hard not to because it was just set piece after set piece after set piece on the island of all this action. And then when you get to finally get to the manor, it's like starts getting atmospheric and it gets a little bit like the orphanage and it gets a bit like, a, you know, mm. the monster calls and the other Bayona mm. films, which I absolutely love. Mm. I'm uh, I'm not opposed to fun uh, <laughs> uh, in, a, in a blockbuster movie, but I just, 
I I just felt like there was too much, and also the stakes. Uh, I mean, you know that you know who's going to die, and you know who's going to yeah, survive. Yeah, okay. So also we get and none of that is challenged. Um, and the uh, look, the, the the sort of the one thing I do want to say about it is, um, I feel like in a lot of these franchises that bring in a distinctive director for uh, an instalment, I think Star Wars is another example of this. The director gets like they get these moments to show, showcase their visual sensibility, but it's a combined, you know, maybe five minutes of a two-hour running time, and the rest of it is endlessly forgettable. I just think that's a real problem uh, plaguing a lot of these um, blockbuster films, including this. I mean, yes, there were some stunning scenes of dinosaurs roaring, you know, with the moon in the background. Like, why didn't the film revel in that scene with the T-Rex or what was it? I can't even remember it, it, which dance Well, it did was. have a, a scene in which it was quite emotional and there was a little revelling, little yeah, emotional yeah, revelling going on. Such a small, I mean, why is it I the camera... I agree with you, there needs to be a like, lot to make it worthwhile, to make revisiting these stories worthwhile, worth I, our time. Yeah, I mm. agree. I don't know, I'm... I'm, I'm yeah, I'm ready no, There was to a scene on. in a bedroom... Which I th- which really stood out for me is Bayona just do- yeah, throwing cool. everything out the window, which I thought was really great. I loved um, the character of Maisie. Maisie I think Lockwood. that you guys are forgetting the most important thing. Yes. On a scale of like let's say ten to twenty, how sexy was Jeff Goldblum? He oh, was pretty sexy. Actually. Well, look, this is actually one of my biggest problems. Is that if you look at the trailer, you get the idea that Goldblum is going to be a character in it, but he's pretty much entirely in the trailer. He's like, oh yeah, he's in one it for five scene. seconds. Oh. Yeah, he's he in a, a, a starter right at the end. Yeah, and pretty much just doing a voiceover. It's also, almost... I was on team Jeff Goldblum. So Jeff Goldblum's like, like, why would you? These dinosaurs. Have, why wouldn't you just let the dinosaurs die? I mean, I know why Hollywood doesn't want to let dinosaurs die, but why wouldn't you? Why would you go? Oh yeah, we need to save these things that have killed all these people well, this, and cause mayhem upon mayhem. Like when, when they're playing the animal liberation of sled, I'm like, no, just let the dinosaurs. You played with God. It was a mistake. Let's move on. There was some singer-esque um, speciesism which went on, which which, <laughs> which is the argument, which is the answer to your question. So yes. they're faced with an ethical situation like that. They think of dinosaurs as being equivalent to humans. It's like. So there, they did actually raise into yeah, with no, ethical well, issues. Credit to the film, it which did the raise previous it. one did not. But you're right. There's not enough Goldblum. He does not take his shirt off no. at any point. No. Um, and I, I don't know. I just, I just no, where's my um, my box office money? No, as much as I enjoyed it, I actually don't recommend this. I think there are so many other good films out right now that if you haven't already seen it, you're um, including the original Jurassic World, which I quite liked. Well, yeah, I think I would I would go and see Hereditary or Incredibles Two or Disobedience oh, yeah. over this. Yeah. As much as I thought it was great fun. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Cultural Capital Podcast. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Hurst. I'm Eloise Ross. And this will be a podcast investigating things that are happening on screens in Melbourne and the conversations. It's a surprise about. edition of Cultural Capital. We've just come back from the MIF program launch and we have plenty of ideas and opinions and things to share with you. Perhaps we can even help you make your way through the program guide, which is full of hundreds of interesting options. You know, there's only a finite amount of money that a lot of people have to spend on MIF, and so we would like you to get the most you possibly can out of it. Absolutely. We're here to help. Yes, and that was Anders first, you just heard, and here is Eloise Ross. Yeah, I've got some opinions, definitely never short of opinions. So. And in fact, I was bored by it. In fact, I almost walked out. Really? Movie. I wanted and to walk out I, as well. Yeah, I all, yeah. And, and I've never felt that way about any movie, I think, in memory anyway. Um, but I didn't because I'm a professional. Um, Bane did tweet simply, fuck baby driver. 
So, Andy, are you on Team Bourdain? Uh, no, I'm not. I was completely won over by this film. I feel like it is just so full of joy. I mean, it's a completely sublime, wonderful experience I found. That is exactly what life is. <laughs> See, we, I, so, uh, I think it's such a wonderful distillation of the, <laughs> the inevitability of death. I knew I was going to be completely overwhelmed by this exhibition. <laughs> Look, I'm a big fan of a lot of stuff, as no doubt our listeners will know, or anyone who knows me. I don't know what to say. I love this exhibition. I knew I would. I adore Edith Head and I adore Hollywood costumes. Barbara Stanwyck. Hey. Hey. Um, what are the chances? <laughs> well, that's absolutely stunning imagery about small town American life. These, So this group of young uh, people go around selling magazines door to door and the bulk of the, or quite a substantial amount of this movie is spent in their somewhat claustrophobic minivan and I felt like every few minutes they would be singing along to a new song. I found that really interesting, like you can't... Um, So Flick, did you find much appeal in this depiction of Los Angeles as a neon demon or were you left behind for the ride? (laughs) Well... I had a lot of anticipation about seeing this. Um, I even, when I got my new bike, named it The Neon Demon. Because <laughs> I assumed I would really love the film. And my bike is really neon. But it's just something that has has been sort of like bothering me about it. You know, working class lives in particular are generally not considered interesting on film unless we're glorying in how terrible working class lives are. And as someone from a working class background, I think that should house. Thank you for having me once again on the last day. Yes, we're going to be without our usual co-host Anders Furs, who has fallen victim to myth, as so many have fallen in recent days. A shout out to Joe David here as well. My number two is Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter, <laughs> uh, one of my all-time favourite movies. Um, <laughs> Making his fifth appearance, <laughs> probably. Um, yeah, so you probably don't need to hear about this movie. Yet. Anyway, Andy. I think if you've watched the film twice and you're still not sure what Claire Denise was trying to explore, on some level it must have failed. I mean, no. I don't think so. Well, no, I don't because think so. she's too clever a filmmaker to make a willfully obscure film. This is the most boring film I've seen in <laughs> such a long time. I can't express on how many levels this disappointed me. Yes, I loved this film, Andy Hazel and Eloise Ross. I really, really loved it. And in fact, so much so that I woke up the next morning and I felt this huge emotional hangover from the film. It's very emotional. And that was a little glimpse of one of the 49 episodes before this to make sure you remember how far we've come over these last two years and how many lols we've given you. Um, and was How much like incredible banter we have exchanged. In- and hopefully insightful banter yeah. that has led you to reassess the cinematic medium. <laughs> That's why we're here. Yeah, I know, and we're so grateful you're here too. Thank you for having faith in um, us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, thank you. It's okay. been fun. So we decided to look at our top three films about faith to tie in with disobedience, and it is an extremely broad um, canvas. So broad, I was struggling. Yes, so yes I was actually thinking, do we need to narrow it down to film setting within the Jewish community or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many great directors have chosen this as a subject to explore. Yeah, they have. And interesting, uh, we were talking about this before, Abby, um, films that have religious characters versus films that are tellings of religious mm. stories versus films that interrogate faith as a concept. I feel like most of my films that I've chosen are more about anti-faith or people presenting, you know, deceiving people with a false performance of 
faith, uh, right, which I yeah. find very interesting as well. Mm. Yes. Um, because in that sense, it's like abusing the concept of faith um, in in films. Mm. Anyway, that's where I've come from mostly. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. I was looking more at faith instead of religion, mm-hmm. and how faith in, impacts a particular character for my sure. top three. Because that was one of the things that struck me most about disobedience. Yeah. Was this mind and body tension mm-hmm. and the way that faith, you know, essentially gives you the answers, but there's always the physical to consider and and that can be represented as libido or it can represent it in uh, various other ways. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. That's very interesting. Well, that is the most interesting thing of it, I think. It's much more interesting than someone holding up a cross and doing something awful or nailing yeah. someone to one or something like that. Nothing against that, of course. Nothing against that. No, some of the greatest images from cinema history. <laughs> are very similar story. All right, Anders, you want to start us off? I'll kick us off. My number three is quite a recent film. Uh, it is Martin Scorsese's Silence. Oh, nice one. Which... He's, it's a decades-in-the-making epic of religious persecution, and it really sort of came and then swiftly went from cinemas last year. But I think it will, or my hope for this film, is it will grow in esteem um, as more audiences find the time to connect with it. It's a strange, almost old-fashioned film, very slow. Andrew Garfield is... Um, well, I find him quite irritating. Actually, he's the main character, <laughs> which. But this is this is why this is, I'm coming around to why why this makes this film um, so good. Bear with me. He's a Portuguese Jesuit priest who's come to Japan to search for a fellow priest uh, who has apparently renounced his faith. Um, Christians uh, being tortured by the uh, the powers that be in Japan at this uh, moment in time. Along the way, he is tormented by the fearsome. Inoue Masashige, played by the Japanese comedian and actor Issei Ogata. And I think Ogata's performance in particular is one of the highlights of the film, um, as well as Scorsese's, you know, very well-refined visual palette. He creates... I mean, this is a film that... I mean, it's literally dedicated to persecuted Japanese Christians. So Scorsese has a very particular point of view... But his film does not. His film allows for other perspectives, which I find very interesting. But also interesting is the soundtrack for the film, um, for a film called Silence. And this is what I really latch onto as a viewer. Um, there's really counterintuitively no silence in the movie. You hear the film before you see it: uh, birds chirping, cicadas hissing, and then we the opening images are these sort of striking images of Japanese Christians being crucified on the coast. So this hum is sort of a constant background score to the fluctuating horrors that de- are depicted on screen. And I keep on asking myself, with no clear answer, what is Scorsese? doing here? Is he connecting these sounds to the presence of God, suggesting that he is not so silent after all? Or is he simply emphasising that nature is entirely ambivalent to the violence that humans inflict on each other in God's name? The ambiguity there is repeated throughout the film, and I think that complexity makes it really worth re-watching and uh, re-evaluating. It's a really complex film. It is, yeah. I'm, I'm actually really surprised at how quickly it seems to have disappeared from the conversation. Yeah. Particularly when people talk about Scorsese now, they're kind of fixated on this 
seventy million dollar Netflix series, Netflix thing, movie film. <laughs> yeah, and that sort of stuff. And I'm like, but he just yeah. Well, they talk about his like e- extraordinary violence, you know, yes, of yeah. either the eighties, nineties, or or you know, the Departed kind of thing, rather than exactly, yeah. silence. But yeah, it's such a fascinating film. I still feel like yeah, I definitely need to watch it again. And yeah. but I mean, Garfield's character is so to to a sort of agnostic viewer like me, he's so on one level, very frustrating. Like, the persecutors say, if you just stop your ridiculous... If you just renounce, just renounce God, and we'll let you all go. Like, this will all be over. Like, just renounce God. And he refuses to do it. And I think it's a testament to the film's power that, despite the fact that Andrew Garfield is, I think, quite... is almost... Well, he's quite annoying, I think, actually, and I don't think he's particularly good in his performance. Despite that, I... You sympathise quite... You, you you see it as totally understandable why he does not, despite the fact that his actions are on one hand leading to the deaths and persecution of all these people. I mean, but are they really? I mean, no, it's the, it's the um, those in power in Japan who were doing it. So, mm. look, there's all sorts of different layers here, which I yeah. find endlessly fascinating. Great choice. Yeah. My number three choice, I suppose, is The Miracle Woman, Frank Capra's film from 1931. Oh. It's a pre-code film from Columbia Studios in which a woman creates her own church and becomes something of a sham preacher after her own dying father is mistreated by his church. So he was a minister and he was kind of mistreated by his church um, and so she becomes disillusioned with faith and with a religion um, and just um, kind of gets a con man and then they go into this show spectacle kind of carnival setting for themselves. Mm. So she performs fake miracles for an audience um, and there's a distinct air, as I said, of the carnival show in her work, particularly in this first big scene where she appears in front of a stadium-like audience tent in a cage of lions and sort of calls out to the audience, like, who will join me? Who has the faith that these beautiful creatures will not attack me? There's about six lions in it, I think. Um, anyway, and then there's a cut, you know, you kind of get this element of performance and get drawn into her calling. And then there's a cut to backstage and there's the con man saying, where's our guy? Where's our audience member? and a cut to him um, the guy who they get to you know be the the person who volunteers he's um passed out drunk in the audience so there's a whole <laughs> lot going on here with um you know commentary on society and betrayal and just people getting waylaid or bored or misdirected um but then sh- there's a man in the audience in this particular scene who is a blind man with dedicated faith and he trusts her or he trusts her voice and um, so he volunteers and he goes into the cage. And then they begin, it's a quite a strange film because there's a lot of just the two of them, this man, um, this blind man, a returned war veteran and, um, oh my goodness, how did it wait, take me so long to mention that the miracle woman is Barbara Stanwyck. Hey, hey um, what are the chances, <laughs> Sam? <laughs> um, anyway, so it's just them having a conversation and it's his irrepressible like faith in her and in God and then her kind of, you know, I mean, it's very much like she's becoming reformed within religion and with Christianity. I mean, if anyone knows Frank Capra, um, you'd know he's super, super conservative. Like everyone's seen, it's a wonderful life, right? Um, You know, that's a brilliant film and so moving, but also very, very, very Christian. This is about the reformation of a phony in this film and the kind of like a man saving Mm. a woman, being unable to see her ugliness 
her ugliness, which is only a performance because he he's blind so he can tell, you know, he's got a sense about her true, beautiful self. I mean, it's a beautiful film. It's really, really striking, particularly for Stanwyck's performance, which is excellent, and the cinematography. Joseph Walker um, was a cinematographer who had filmed Stanwyck in a lot of pictures and worked on a lot of um, Capra films as well. Um, and he is incredibly famous, maybe most famously for The Awful Truth, that mm. 1937 oh, yeah. film. Love that. Yeah. Um, but he was very, very good at kind of capturing both, of the, I guess, the grandness of these these scams and also the intimacy of the, the relationship mm. and the smaller moments. Mm. So mm. anyway. The how, how is it pre-code? I mean, I know temporarily it obviously mm. is, but are there freedoms there that they took that they wouldn't have been able to take years later i can't remember specifically but i think that definitely in the portrayal of what she has done and her relationships with the mob boss and how she has deceived people and that she does i mean she's not punished ultimately Mm, right um, either And, and that's not the case you know in all you know all postcode films that that the fallen woman is punished but but very much in this case i think right awesome such a fascinating time yeah Cool. Well, my f- um, my number three is n- turns ninety this year, and it is the Passion of Joan of Arc, because I could not do a list without some Carl Theodore Dreyer, who I really really like. I've talked about his film Audet on a previous episode, which, and I realised we actually have discussed <laughs> quite a few films that I was considering for this top three <laughs> already, and so I thought I'd... I do love Audet. So do I. And Passion of Joan of Arc. Yeah, obviously. it's stunning. But I thought it, you know you to really you can't really overlook the film that almost defined redefined cinema mm. in the way that it was shot. And um, it also reminded me how much a uh, friend of the show, Anne Crawford, uh, resembles uh, Falconetti these days, which is a beautiful thing. <laughs> yes! Yeah, hi, if you're listening. Hi, Anne. Um, so, um, Passion of Joan of Arc is about the 1431 trial of Joan of Arc, um, who won't re- deny that she has had holy visions, and there's an ecclesiastical jury who are tormenting her and eventually um, are responsible for her death. I don't think that's a spoiler. 90 years on. But there's, it's just the framing, the performance, the story, the dedication, the faith that the, the dryer has in Falconetti's face and in like trusting this whole story, pretty much just to her ability to show trauma and torture and just, just the, the fact that there is this um, integrity that she refuses to ever divulge that keeps her mind and spirit um, and body all t- kind of together right up until the, the closing scenes. The fact that the um, the jury that who is trying her are clearly um, unable to live up to the ideals that she's never really even questioned is also kind of makes this even more powerful and more tragic. And I saw it a few years ago to Acme again, and I still just blew me away at just how simple and how powerful it is. I don't even watch number three to be honest. It's just such a brilliant film, yeah. and I would highly recommend any chance you get to go and see it. And but I also feel like it's been discussed a million times. <laughs> so yeah, but always worth a mention. It's always worth a mention and always mm. worth seeing. Yeah. Uh, so this, um, people often talk about this film being radical in its cinematography. Mm. Could you? Well, yeah, the talk use of why? framing. So that's one of the key things about Dreyer, and in, in all of his films, he just is in love with the bottom third of the screen. And so often mm. these these characters mm. are kind of being dwarfed by the situations that they're in, or, or mm, that they okay. seem. To, he, he wants to make them seem extra, you know, like smaller than they really are, and so he'll often leave a lot of whiteness and blankness. And that's the austerity um, in all the scenes in which, you know, when she's in the courtroom, when um, Joan is in her cell, uh, it's just, she's just so, him so alone and so fragile, but then also, like, stronger than everybody, yeah. So I, I, the way that he kind of uses the very basic cinematic devices back in 1928 to tell that 
I think it still works really, really well today. Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, my number two is also um, actually now that I think about it, full of odd scene compositions. It is Le Fil de Joseph, the son of Joseph, a 2014 film by Eugene Green, um, French-based American-born filmmaker whose work is instantly identifiable. Um, as I've written elsewhere, depending on how generous you're feeling, you could characterise him as either awkwardly stilted or refreshingly formalist. So his <laughs> films um, consist of characters who talk directly to the screen um, in a lot of the scenes. They move in sort of highly structured, very self-conscious blocking, sometimes meaning that we, the audience, become either the people who they're talking to or, as is often the case, works of art that they're sort of viewing and discussing. Um, maybe we even become a stand-in for God in a weird way in this film, which is a pseudo-retelling of the nativity story. So its main character, this film's main character is Vincent, uh, a teenage boy who lives in a, a absolutely beautifully appointed Parisian apartment with his single mother, Marie. He's trying to track down his biological father, uh, who is a sort of dickhead publisher, played by Mathieu Almeric, but instead he finds a surrogate father figure in the form of that man's brother. Uh, the pair visit churches, and much of the film consists of them earnestly discussing the beauty uh, and importance of Christian art. And I've seen this movie twice now, and both times it took a very long time to grow on me. The first hour feels like one very slow, deliberate drawing in of the viewer to Green's sort of distinctively drawn depiction of Paris, which is sort of drenched in Christian religious symbolism and reference to um, to painting, sculpture, music, all sort of coming from the Western Christian tradition and stuff that I'm not really drenched in, uh, or at least consciously so, um, as he is. But halfway through the film, there's this sort of beautiful scene where this father figure takes the teenager to a church where a musical group is rehearsing a 17th century music piece. An opera singer begins to sing, and both characters and the film itself take in this performance. And it's just a beautiful, like really quite breathtakingly beautiful depiction of the power of art and beauty. The song's all about beauty and how the tragedy of beauty is that it inevitably exists in town with the ageing of both the subject and the perceiver. So you've got this very heavy artistic thing going on at the same time as there's a parody of the Parisian um, bourgeois literature scene. Um, and then you've got this increasingly more obvious retelling of the Christian nativity story, um, uh, culminating with, you know, women on donkeys and all this other stuff. So <laughs> there's so much going on in this film, but it's really, really quite beautiful. And I've I've come around to Eugene Green. He's a sort of, yeah, he's an acquired taste, this guy. But um, his films, are, once every couple of years, they'll show in a film festival. He's really working in that tradition of Christian art, which is, yeah, very distinctive and not particularly, uh, you know, quite esoteric, but very, very powerful when taken on its own terms. Mm. Yeah, so that's uh, the Le Fils de Joseph. Elmer Gantry is an all-American boy. He's interested in money, sex, and religion. In 
1917, Mr. Gantry was expelled from a theological seminary in Kansas for seducing a Miss Lula Baines, the deacon's daughter, in the church where he had that day delivered a Christmas sermon. My next choice is Elmer Gantry, Richard Brooks' film from 1960. This is a colour film with a pretty similar narrative shell, I suppose, to The Miracle Woman, although in other ways it's completely, entirely different. So the essential narrative of this, or setup of this film, is a con man. In the opening scene introduces us to a con man played by Burt Lancaster. Kind of, he cheats at cards, he's a drunkard. Um, he's a sweet talker, you know. I mean, it's Burt Lancaster, what do you expect? <laughs> Who goes kind of into business with a phony or at least deceitful evangelist, Sister Sharon Falconer, played by Jean Simmons. He kind of sees her performance and she goes, um, she has a road show and goes and performs to audiences around, you know, going to rural communities and trying to get them to give money to the church and, and sign up people to got the to their Christian faith. Um, anyway, he sees potential in her to con a whole lot of money out of a lot of people. And so they go on this big road show spectacle selling religion to the small towns. Um, and they have a dodgy manager played by Dean Jagger, who was kind of in a lot of films around this time. And he has a fascinating face in himself and so really strong and then Arthur Kennedy also really incredible face I mean you know you just kind of look at the cast of this film and it's going to sell you mm. all just from the beginning their show attracts attention press attention um, because it's so big and it's revealed that Sister Sharon is kind of just doing this for fame so she's not necessarily a phony but she is um, pushing her luck I suppose She and she's also a little bit naive and so she does get taken on board by Burt Lancaster so she's not entirely in the wrong either this film is all almost two and a half hours, but it's pretty spectacular. I mean, things never slow down. There's a lot going on. There are probably a couple of um, side plots that you might see coming and (laughs) might not surprise you, but overall this is a really rich narrative. I think it won. Richard Brooks won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. I think Burt Lancaster also won Best Actor. Um, this year um, and it moves so it moves through a series of really incredible plot points to um, like a stunning ending and I don't want to spoil it even though it's 58 years old um, <laughs> but just really amazing film absolutely is worth watching this film for I think this kind of thing I mean this kind of treatment of religion as a cult and as yeah. something that can be mm. exploited is something very that rings very, very true to reality. I mean, there are a lot of documentaries, and I was reminded of one particularly called Holy Hell by Will Allen from 2016 about a meditation cult in West Hollywood in the 80s where wow. he actually took footage because he was there kind of assigned to be, forget the guy's name, but the guru was claiming to be in all sorts of ways like this kind of Jesus. But he, this Will Allen was employed as like the propagandist um, in the cult who was you know meant to kind of recruit new followers. And then he actually kind of stole the footage when he left the cult and made this documentary about it. That's kind of what I find really, really interesting is about these narratives and maybe why I have brought so many of them into this podcast 
is just that I love that kind of deceitful um, mm. idea and that idea of like of making religion like a, a carnival show rather mm. than something to be respected and something that is fulfilling. Anyway, Elma Gantry. And Gene Simmons is, I see, in one of Andy's next choices. <laughs> um, <laughs> just as a little segue, <laughs> advanced segue. Anyway. <laughs> Beautifully done. Um, <laughs> yes, my number two is uh, a 1947 film called Black Narcissus. And it's a Powell Pressburger film. And like all Powell Pressburger films, they look amazing and mm. usually focus on the story of women or a woman. And this is no exception. Because partly they look amazing because of Jack Cardiff's work. We should not mm-hmm. forget his incredible cinematography. The hallmark of a Power Post-Hacker film, I think, to me at least, is a beautifully, lushly rendered world. It looks extremely vivid. It's, it's really, really inviting, regardless of the nature of the story. And there's often a lot of movement. There's just a joy about filmmaking, I think, that comes through, no matter what the story is. And in this case, you've got a story of five women who set, decide to go to the Himalayas to set up a sort of convent school and hospital for the locals there. And this becomes a sort of a hot house for tension because they've got their British ways, they've got the faith, and they're in this alien land, which is you know in the, in the midst of the Himalayas. Things start to fall apart, partly because of the isolation and partly because of the personalities there. So you've got Deborah Carr playing um, Clodagh, who's an Irish nun who's trying to get over a broken heart. Sister Ruth is played by Kathleen Byron, and she becomes increasingly mentally fragile, I suppose, and there's a lot of jealousy of Clodagh. Uh, and then into the picture comes a local British agent called uh, Mr. Dean. He's played by David Farrer, an extremely handsome man who causes all sorts of tensions among the women. And then uh, Jean Simmons is a sort of a lower-class dancer. She's yeah, vividly rendered. <laughs> <laughs> she looks amazing. Everybody does, in fact. Everything looks pretty amazing in this, I think. Uh, so I think what's really interesting about here is that you've got this me- meeting of spirit and nature. So you've got this very fixed idea of the faith, and then you've got all these challenges constantly around you from the Himalayas, from the passions within, and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you just constantly, the, the, the need for faith and the need for guidance is always on the outer for the, with these particular women. Um, and this makes a really, really interesting story because so much is repressed and so much is unsaid and alluded to by searing close-up and you know stolen glances and that sort of stuff that it's just this really fascinating story and it's quite unlike a lot of their other films in that way. And you've got a lot, of, like in The Red Shoes, say, you've got somebody who's got the complete drive and the kind of falls apart. So it's actually a similar sort of fairy tale world, come to think of it, like with Tales of Hoffman and with um, Matter of Life and Death. I really, really love it. It's my favourite repressed psycho lesbian nun story. Really? Well, there are, there's a few in that. <laughs> there are a few in that genre. Yeah, I think Argento's had a look at that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is the story of a high endeavour that tried and tested a woman in the remote background of Asia. The story of a prince and a beggar maid and of a nun who gave up her vows. Why should we want to keep you here against your will? Because you're all jealous of me. Especially you. The clash of strong personalities. I understood you wanted to see me. We want to talk to you on business. I suppose you want to talk to me on anything else. Sorry. I don't know why you are being so rude to me, Mr. Dean. I have to talk business with you whether I like it or not. Well, I love it so much that in possibly a first for cultural capital, it's my number one. No, I'm so sorry. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, tell me all about it. But I know. Well, I look. You've stole my thunder. I it agree. It did happen once, actually, okay. on an episode um, one you alluded to earlier, Andy, oh, with 10. the Magnificent Seven. Oh, sorry. When yes. Joe um, Joe oh, oh, yeah. Dimitia guested um, in your place, and you both chose the. 
Jesse James. Oh, Assassination of the Assassination by Coward Robert Ford. Robert That's Robert true. Ford we did both have a lot to say about that film. top three Western. Anyway. <laughs> um, I, I'm uh, shocked that this doesn't happen more often. Yeah, so am I. Yeah. Um, anyway, no, I completely echo everything that you you say there. Um, the uh, that's the subtext, the repression is so interesting. And what's interesting is it's played against this sort of uh, vividly rendered environmental context, this sort yeah. of high up mm. in the mountains, in the Himalayas. Um, and that they're kind of like diametrically opposed sides of the same coin. They're really, there's something about that juxtaposition that... Um, accentuates the film's power, I think. And look, the only other thing I would add really to everything that you said is that the nuns really, they have no problem sort of othering the locals, which Mm. only sort of hastens their almost entirely self-imposed scent into madness, I would argue. So that's what I think makes the film really hold up now, what, some 70 years after it was created. It's not a film about a bunch of Western nuns going off to the Himalayas to convert the locals. And, you know, it's not a film about celebrating that act at all. Um, In fact, you could argue that that very process is what drives them to tear themselves apart, themselves. Um, So it's, it's wonderful. And um, yeah, the, yeah, the, as, as you said, the visuals are stunning. You know, there's that sort of famous shot from above of, um, Is it Deborah Kerr who's um, pulling the bell yeah, at that yeah, point? Yeah, um, God, I just, how did they even get that? I can't get my head around I, this 71 I, years ago. It's, it's like, incredible. It's amazing. It's like a drone shot or something. Um, it is. And the the use of red and mm. sort of like, yeah, just and really... The, the way that the monastery, oh, sorry, nunnery is kind of shot as if it's floating in clouds, like a literal castle in the air, this sort of place oh, that yeah, they're just imagining. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? It's a real sort of dreamlike. I really... Um, would recommend it if you haven't already seen it. Definitely worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, my number one is a film that I wonder if I've mentioned before because I seem to be unable to not talk about this film. <laughs> um, now, Andy mentioned that he was going to watch Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew in preparation for this segment. And um, I don't know what his number one film is. Um Maybe I do, but anyway, let's just go with that. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> at least listeners know we don't collude before on oh, no, no. top threes. This we don't. Yes. My number one is his nineteen sixty eight film Teorama, mm. um, which is maybe not ostensibly about faith or religion, but it's kind of one of those films that you can metaphorically read as being about it. But mm. there's no way to read this film but as a metaphor. <laughs> It's a film about an upper-class family living in a mansion in Italy who are visited by a mysterious man in beige pants. Now, that's a very important (laughs) um, observation. Who is played by Terence Stamp. Now, this man, who I think is only referred to as the man or the stranger or something, seduces everyone in the family, mother, father, son, daughter, um, who are adult slash teenage children. And dog. Mm. And made postman and dog. That's um, right. <laughs> amongst everything, including it being a sharp commentary on the workers' labour union movement, the father is of you know kind of owns a factory, and then once uh, the the kind of with the introduction and then the uh, removal of this stranger in their family environment, he begins to reconsider. I think the, those power structures. 
um, that he has benefited from. But I think I have to say that the star feature of this film is Terence Stamp's crotch in those beige pants. There are a lot of close-ups um, or, you know, framings, really beautiful framings of his pants. In any case, it is a fun film, but it's also very, very moving. It's scored by Ennio Morricone, but also has Mozart's Requiem throughout, and so it's incredibly powerful. And it's very strange. I mean, you know, we say that the the narrative of this film is that this stranger comes, seduces them, and then leaves. But everything that kind of happens in between and also afterwards with the mental breakdowns that you watch all of these characters having either breakdowns or just changes of direction and their lives might become enriched for instance that it's a very complex film I mean you wouldn't expect anything less of Pasolini nothing he made was straightforward or just had an you know an ABA kind of structure um, in that case and so I mean I don't know whether you're meant to be read it this way but perhaps it suggests that um, overall, if you maybe believe in God, if you have a belief in a divine power and then you are betrayed by it or deserted by it um, or something happens within your own mind to mean that you no longer have a connection with that divine power, then you will be worse off. Then society will be unable to operate as it was once meant to or you will, as an individual, be unable to you know, proceed with life. And so, I mean, I don't know at the end of the day what that's meant to, to suggest. I mean, I have some ideas, but but it's very, very interesting kind of in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Terence Stamp is the divine creature. Mm-hmm. Um, the crotch is the cross. <laughs> crotch. Could you go that far? <laughs> you could go that far. Um, Queering of cross, I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's brilliant. It, it really is. Um, I love it so much. And stars mm. the late Anne Vyazemsky as the daughter. Cool, and that's Teorama. Teorama, or cool. Theorem, I think, yes. in English. I think that sounds familiar. Mm. Cool. Um, well, my number one is not The Gospel According to Matthew, although that was a very striking film. Um, and no, no, one thing I've, we forgot to mention about Black Narcissus is that it was adapted from a book by Margaret Rumer Godden. And my number one is also adapted by a British authoress, and this is um, Daphne du Maurier's Don't Look Now. I've seen your little girl, and she was laughing. Yes, my sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her, and she wants you to know that she's happy. Christine. Nicholas Rogue from 1973. So this is best known as a horror film, which it is, but it's um, not really a good horror film because of the scary moments that turn up. It's because of the way that it looks at faith, I think, um, and the way that it explores what happens when you accept or when you remain sceptical and the toll that that takes. Um, so the film, if you're not familiar, um, features Donald Sutherland playing a man called John Baxter, who's a very rational architect and has, doesn't believe in psychics or omens or the afterlife or anything like that. In the opening scene, his daughter Christine is drowned um, and shortly afterwards travels to Venice to restore a church whose foundations are unstable, which is one of the most obvious faith analogies I've ever seen. Also, <laughs> nobody ever seems to mention this when they talk about the film. It's like he's literally fixing the facade of the church, which is sinking. Anyway, so uh, he goes there with his wife, Laura, who's played by Julie Christie, 
And uh, shortly after they arrive, she meets a, a blind woman who says that she has visions of Christine um, in a red Mac and that she's happy. And so Julie finds this extremely comforting and decides that she wants to spend more time with Heather, this blind psychic who's played by Hilary Mason, and Heather's sister with whom she's travelling. This is kind of instantly set up as this kind of jarring glance where you are given visions of things that are about to happen. So you are kind of drawn into these premonitions and visions uh, and these are things that uh, the Heather has, that uh, Julie Christie has, that uh, John Baxter re- refuses to believe in. Um, Laura be- believes this vision, and this, and her having faith begins to splinter their marriage. And if the other thing that this film is famous for, besides the its horror aspects, uh, is the, one of the most realistic and moving sex scenes. And you give this sex scene at this really particular point where you feel that they've had a lot of grief because of Christine's death, that they're travelling here to in an attempt to restore the faith in each other, and then they have this beautiful scene with, with this moment, which is also thrown uh, slightly dis- unsettling by having shots of them getting dressed and leaving the apartment and back to the sex scene. And so you have this idea that the, the, the marriage is actually on a, on a good footing, but then Laura's adherence to this faith and the fact that she wants to be able to communicate with Christine or to be able to reach some sort of... Um, closure ends up having this huge toll. At one point, one of the um, Heather says that he, you know, the John Baxter, has visions and he has, he actually has the gift, but he's refusing to believe it. And so, it ends up becoming manifesting in, in all these beautifully different, interesting ways that um, the, the cinematographer and uh, Nicholas Rogue, who did a lot of the cinematography himself, actually end up using, which is like Venice in the off season, almost devoid of people. It's shot in late autumn. There's rats running alongside the canals. It's not this beautiful place, which is you know been written about so many times. It's this sort of dreamlike place on earth. It's almost this nightmarish, like place where they often get lost, and so it's almost like a prison in a way. And so the only rational response to this continued scepticism of John's is to have this completely devastating conclusion. And in 2002, Roger Ebert wrote, um, I've been through the film a shot at a time, paying close attention to the use of red as a marker in its visual scheme, and it's a masterpiece of physical filmmaking in the way that the photography evokes mood and the editing underlines it with uncertainty. And even the title itself is almost like a prophetic warning about what happens you know, with faith, about the fact that you might be looking at the wrong place at the wrong time, or you might you know, remain resolutely sceptical and not embrace it and have a horrendous um, ending as a result. Are you guys both fans of mm. Don't Look Now? Yes. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. I have two honourable mentions. Can I honourably mention yes, them please. very quickly? Yes. One of them is a film called Lord by Jessica Hausner from 2009. Um, Lord or Lords, excuse me. Um, it's a place in France. Anyway, I saw this oh. film at Venice in, two, in 2009 when I was backpacking across Europe and I made us detour to the film festival. Um, <laughs> anyway, I haven't seen it since then. I remember very little of it, but for some reason my mind often returns to it. So it's about a, a woman with multiple sclerosis in a wheelchair played by Sylvie Testud. Um, and she goes to, she makes a pilgrimage to Lourdes to this, um, in the Pyrenees, this place that's a recovery mecca for Christians, um, in the hope that, you know, she will be given the, the, she will be, I guess, channel the faith and then be, um, be kind of cured. Anyway, I think it's a, from memory, it's a cruel film, but one that is just very dedicated to making its point and to exploring the atmosphere of the place, but also kind of the complexities of, faith and illness Mm. um anyway i i don't even know if it's really worth um recommending although i (laughs) do think that it is i do see its name come up every now and again so it must be a much admired film and i do 
kind of think about returning to it every now and again. Anyway, I should, and maybe other people should too. And my second is a film that I can't not mention. Um, It's a film by Henry Hathaway from 1968 called Five Card Stud. It's about a town in Colorado that's tainted by cheats in a poker game, um, including one played by Dean Martin. So the cheats begin to get killed off one by one, and there's no suspect. Um, But there is, however, a menacing preacher with a gun played by Robert Mitchum. And I believe that this may be a reference to the Colcap's favourite film of all time, (laughs) Night of the Hunter. Which is also a fave-based faith-interested uh, film. film. Anyway, yeah. so couldn't go through <coughs> our two-year anniversary ep without giving yeah. that film a mention. Anyway, Five Card Start. It's just a whole chunk of fun. Yeah, um, sounds great. Yeah, it's excellent. I mean, it's a great Western, great characters and actors, but also brilliant framing and imagery. Mm. Um, really, really worth it. Um, so, yeah, there <laughs> you go. I didn't think we were going to make it to the end without mentioning Night of the Hunter. We had. mentioning <laughs> scoundrels, scoundrels <laughs> posing as preachers. Oh, and yes. <laughs> Anyway, we, we didn't. We can sleep peacefully tonight. I'm writing <laughs> that down. I, my two honourable mentions are uh, Carmelo Bene's 1972 film Salome, which is a psychedelic and frenzied um, telling of the biblical story uh, based on a play by Oscar Wilde. Um, and I'll do a shout out to Apichatpong, Weira Sifakul's Cemetery of Splendour, oh, nice which mm. um, incorporates. Uh, quite a lot of Buddhism in its filmmaking yep. um, and in the sort of daily life that it depicts. Yeah, good call. Yeah. Um, there was a few films that we've already mentioned on earlier episodes that I didn't want to uh, talk about again necessarily, including Audet, which I mentioned earlier. Breaking the Waves I thought was a really s- strong, beautiful film about the impact of faith um, on a community and on a person. We can't not mention Emar Bergman at one point at least because he did spend mm. an awful of lot course, of time yes. pondering faith. Um, I'd think like The Seventh Seal is a really good example of that. Of The Wicker Man I'm a massive fan of, um, but I think I had already mentioned that on an earlier episode as well, and I do mean the original. Um, <laughs> uh, Jean de Florette, I think, is a, a, an amazing film about a British, mm-hmm. sorry, about a French community and who are very full of faith and various in, ability or inability to accept miracles. Mm. Um, a film that I really, really loved and I saw in the 2006 Myth was called Kadak, which is directed by um, a, a pair called uh, Peter Brosens and Jessica Woodworth. And this is a set in the steppes of Mongolia, and it's about a young nomad who may or may not be epileptic or may or may not be a shaman with, who's having visions. And it's interesting to see the way that he's treated in the city as, a, as an outcast and in the community, um, which is being beset by this strange plague of animals who are dying mysteriously, and he seems to be able to communicate with them. Anyway, I, that's called Kadak, and I would definitely recommend that too. Amazing. Mm. Cool. Some great films to check out. Yeah. Thank you um, very much, listeners, for making it to the end of episode 50 of Cultural Capital. Thanks for spending two years with us, or however um, much time you have spent with us. We appreciate it. Um, You can catch up with us on uh, various places at the Cultural Capital Podcast on Facebook, at Pod on Twitter, and I'm at Andy Rickey on Twitter. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And we think you're great.